Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. This story we're going to talk about today is a huge story. We've talked about this topic before, and the topic is this. If you live in the state of Michigan and you own a home, and somehow you run afoul of the local tax collector and you owe some money in taxes, and uh, you haven't paid those taxes, property taxes, and for whatever reason you haven't paid them, so they foreclose on your home to get the taxes paid. And then after they sell your home and they pay themselves the taxes, they then keep the surplus. They keep the leftover money. And in every other setting in life, if something's foreclosed upon to pay the debt that you know involves that thing, the surplus always goes back to the original owner of the thing. So you buy a car. You're making payments on the car, and you miss a payment, and they repossess the car. They take the car to auction, they sell it, and if there's money left over, it goes back to you. Because the, the creditor is only entitled to take what's necessary to extinguish the debt. But Michigan and many other states have got this weird situation where they say, well, if you went into tax foreclosure, we get to pay ourselves the taxes and keep the surplus. And believe it or not, they've been fighting this in court for years because it was such a windfall for the government, that they actually came up with the argument that you had abandoned your property by letting it go into foreclosure, which is a legal theory they just invented because nobody else has ever done that or argued that in, oh, I don't know, the several hundred years that these laws have existed. So I got a note yesterday from Kate, who is the media director at Pacific Legal, and she said, Steve, we just won that case. So here's the case. The case uh, is in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in the federal court system. So they had to go to federal court because of the fact that the state courts didn't want to really do too much about this. In this case, the defendant, Oakland County, took absolute title to the plaintiff's home worth close to $300,000 on the facts alleged here to satisfy a $22,000 tax debt then refused to refund any of the difference. The other plaintiffs shared a similar fate with their homes. Under Michigan law, and the law of virtually every state for the past 200 years, a creditor can divest a debtor of real property only after a public foreclosure sale, after which the surplus, if any, are refunded to the debtor. The return of the surplus compensates the debtor for their equitable interest in the property, which in common speech is called the equity in real property, and which English and American courts for centuries have called equitable title. So this goes way back to the the right way of doing it. Yet the Michigan General Property Tax Act created an exception to this rule for just a single creditor, namely the state itself or a county, which is a subdivision of the government which alone among all creditors may take a landowner's equitable title without paying for it, which it does when it collects a tax debt. In that respect, the Michigan statute is not only self-dealing, it is also an aberration from some 300 years of decisions by English and American courts, which barred precisely the action that Oakland County took here. This case is called Hall versus Meisner, by the way. And I'll put a link in the description of the video so you can go read this if you want to. It's an 18-page opinion, and the entire 
document is about 22 pages long with all the case captions and whatnot. So the government may not decline to recognize long-established interests in property as a device to take them. That was the effect of the Michigan Act as applied to the plaintiffs here. And we agree with the plaintiffs that on the facts alleged here, the county took their property without just compensation, getting you back to the Fifth Amendment. Uh, We therefore reverse the district court's dismissal of their claim against the county under the takings clause of the U.S. Constitution. So this case has been brought at several different levels in several different courts, and most recently been brought to a federal court in Michigan. The federal court said, you got no case to the plaintiffs and threw it out. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals says, nope, go back down and do it right. So in further explanation, Oakland County took title of the plaintiffs' homes under the Michigan General Property Tax Act, which prescribed the process for tax foreclosures during the periods relevant here. As a first step, on March 1 of each year, property taxes that remained unpaid during the preceding 12 months were returned as delinquent for collection. If taxes for a property remain unpaid by March 1 of the next year, the property was forfeited to the county treasurer. Forfeiture itself did not affect title. Rather, it merely allowed the foreclosing government unit to petition for a judgment of foreclosure as to the property. Yet the act did not require counties to seek foreclosure. Rather, foreclosure for a county was voluntary. If a county chose not to foreclose on property, the state could do so. And here, the court references a case called Raffaelli versus Oakland County in the Michigan court system that made it all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. If a county or a state did choose to foreclose on a forfeited property, the act required it to file a petition to that effect in the state circuit court by June 15th of the year of the foreclosure. Meanwhile, the property owner was provided with various notices of the foreclosure process and of its right to redeem the property, meaning the right to remove it from the process, by payment of the taxes, interest, penalties, and fees. And that's one thing that people have said. They say, Steve, you know something? If I get a notice saying I owe 300 bucks on my $300,000 home or whatever it might be, I'd pay that. Yes, of course, but we also have heard stories about things that get lost in the mail. Uh, problems with the mail during COVID, for instance. Uh, And also, there are times where they've documented this, where somebody owns several pieces of property, and mail regarding one of the pieces of property was sent to the wrong address. You know, so if the owner did not redeem, the act required the state circuit court to enter foreclosure judgment that vested absolute title to the property in the county or the state if the county chose not to foreclose. The state then had a right of first refusal to buy the property for the minimum bid or its fair market value. If the state declined, the city or town in which the property is located could purchase the property for merely the winning bid. The government body that ended up with the property was then free to sell it at a public auction. So strangely, they could buy it at an auction, dirt cheap, and turn around and somehow sell it at another auction and make money off of it. And yet if these auctions were identical, why would that happen? No matter what the sale price, however, under the act, the property's former owner had no rights to any of the proceeds. And the Supreme Court of Michigan had noted that the act does not provide for any disbursement of the surplus proceeds to the former property owner, nor does it provide former owners a right to make a claim for those surplus proceeds. So in this case, because the trial court at the district level had dismissed it, before it had gone in and actually tried any facts, the court on review of this, on appeal, says, we accept as true the facts alleged in the plaintiff's complaint. And they're going to send this back down 
But of course, at trial, the plaintiffs could still lose, but they can't lose on the simple argument that they're not allowed to bring this case. So in this case, uh, 2018, the Michigan Act, as described above, Oakland County foreclosed in the home of the first named plaintiff to collect a tax delinquency of $22,000. The city, uh, or the county, then conveyed the property to the city of Southfield for the same amount. The city, in turn, conveyed the property for $1 to a nonprofit entity, the Southfield Neighborhood Revitalization Initiative, which later sold it for $308,000. Pursuant to the same process in February of 2016, the county foreclosed the home of a couple for a tax delinquency of $30,000. After the same series of conveyances, the Southfield Neighborhood Revitalization Initiative sold it for $155,000. The county likewise foreclosed on another plaintiff's home for a delinquency of $43,000, and the initiative got title to that property, and they still hold title to the property. So they all filed suit under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 against Oakland County, the city of Southfield, the initiative that holds title to one of these homes, and certain officers of each of those entities. Plaintiffs asserted claims under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, along with various other federal and state claims. Now, the district court dismissed the plaintiff's complaint for failure to state a claim. And this appeal filed. And so when you are faced with a lawsuit, you read the lawsuit, you can raise defenses to the lawsuit. One lawsuit defense you often hear is failure to state a claim. Someone is suing you and you're looking at the lawsuit going, this isn't even a claim that can be pursued in court. And so they argued and said that by saying these people wanted the surplus from these auctions, which they're not entitled to, they haven't stated a claim. But of course, that means that you have to start believing that these people have got no claim to the surplus. Now, it looks like the statute suggests they don't. But then you get to, is that statute legal? So this court on review is going to review the dismissal of those claims. And it points out that the Fifth Amendment's takings clause provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. It's U.S. Constitution Amendment V in Roman numeral styling. The plaintiffs argue that Oakland County did precisely that when it took absolute title to their homes as payment for tax delinquencies that amounted to a mere fraction of the home's values. Specifically, they argue that they each had a vested property right in what is ordinarily called the equity in one's home, meaning the property's value beyond any liens or other encumbrances upon it. The district court, for its part, disagreed in a carefully reasoned opinion. So this court's actually being nice. (laughs) Specifically, the court held that in the event of a foreclosure, the former property owner has a property right only to any surplus proceeds obtained by the foreclosing government unit after the foreclosure sale, if in fact there was one. For that proposition, the court relied upon the Michigan Supreme Court's opinion in the other case, which arguably said as much, but it was in dictum, meaning it wasn't a ruling, it was something they said in passing elsewhere in the opinion. Here, the foreclosing government unit, the county, had not obtained any surplus at all from the disposition of the plaintiff's homes because it conveyed them to the city of Southfield for the amounts of the tax delinquencies. Where we respectfully disagree with the district court, however, is in its assumption that the question whether the county took the plaintiff's property is answered solely by reference to Michigan law. True, the federal constitution protects rather than creates property interests, which means that the existence of a property interest for purpose of 
whether one was taken, is determined by reference to existing rules or understandings that stem from an independent source such as state law. Uh, the takings clause would be a dead letter if a state could simply exclude from its definition of property any interest that the state wished to take. To the contrary, rather, a state may not sidestep the takings clause by disavowing traditional property interests long recognized under state law. And so they're getting at here is that we've had concepts of what property is for hundreds of years. And they talk about property in the Constitution. Michigan became a state in 1837. And we've had several constitutions since then. But of course, that constitution came after the federal government's constitution and of course the Bill of Rights. So when Michigan talks about property in its constitution or in its laws, it's got to be talking about the same property that's in the U.S. Constitution. And, and it goes so far back, that's what you got to do. So Supreme Court applied that rule in a case called Webb's Fabulous Pharmacies versus Beckwith back in 1980, where a Florida statute allowed a county to keep as its own the interest generated on private principal deposited in certain interpleader funds held by a county court. Uh, and that go, they go on to a long discussion of that. But also the court applied the same reasoning in Phillips, where a Texas state bar rule likewise treated as publicly owned any interest generated from private principal deposited in certain trust accounts. And many states do that. The question, though, is whether Michigan likewise disavowed traditional property interests merely by defining them away. Interest the plaintiffs invoke here, again, is an entitlement to the equity in their homes pursuant to principles long articulated by courts of equity before their, mergers, uh, before their merger centuries later with courts of law. There was a time when there were two separate court systems. Uh, there, were, there were courts of equity and, and courts of law. Okay, and if you wanted to have equity performed, you had to go into a court of equity and you had to make that choice. And nowadays, if you file a complaint where you're seeking both money damages and equitable remedies, you can do that in the same court with the same complaint. And by the way, what we're talking about here, equity is often described as simply the non-monetary things you can ask for in court. So quite often, if you want an injunction, the court to order someone to do something or to not do something, that is equity. In Anglo-American legal history, the rules governing equitable interests in real property arose primarily in the context of what we now call mortgages. In the 12th century, when Glanville wrote down the law of his day, a gauge or pledge was property handed over to a lender as security for a loan. So yes, they are now citing something from the 12th century. But a mortgage, mortgage, look it up at how it's spelled, means a dead pledge took the form of a conveyance. Specifically, the borrower would typically grant the lender a fee simple interest in land with a provision for reconveyance of the land back to the borrower upon full payment of the amount owed on a specific date known as the law day. In courts of law, these agreements were strictly construed. Writing in the 1470s, Littleton said that if the borrower failed for any reason to repay the full amount due on that law day, then the land which is put in pledge is taken from him forever and so dead to him. But irrevocable forfeiture of the debtor's entire interest in the land, no matter what the reason for the failure to pay, 
for example, if on that day the lender was nowhere to be found, was before long regarded as an intolerably harsh sanction for a default. And meanwhile, by the year 1500, we must reckon the Court of Chancery as one of the established courts of justice, and it has an equitable jurisdiction. Beside the common law, there is growing up another mass of rules, which is contrasted with the common law, which is known as equity. The ground upon which equitable jurisdiction arose was that a wrong is done for which there is no plain, adequate, and complete remedy at the courts of common law, i.e. no money damages. The court of chancery soon interposed to assuage the harshness of enforcement of mortgages and courts of law. In equity, courts looked through the form of a contract to its substance. And by 1625, the court of chancery saw that while a mortgage agreement took the form of a conveyance and fee simple, it was in substance a security. A security was merely personal property, leaving the mortgagor with an equitable interest in the land. To vindicate that interest, the court of chancery recognized the mortgagor's equity of redemption, which allowed him to regain title to the land by repayment of the amount due even after the law day. In 1678, Lord Hale called the mortgagor's interest a title in equity. Okay? The court further observed that the interest of the land, meaning the interest in real estate or property, must be somewhere and cannot be in abeyance, but it is not in the mortgagee, the lender, and therefore must remain in the mortgagor, the landowner. Thus, the courts conceived the mortgagee's right as a right to money rather than land. By 1759, Lord Mansfield, among English jurists, exceeded in eminence perhaps only by Coke and Hale, would say that the mortgagor's equity of redemption is the fee simple in the land. Hence, the mortgagor's equity to redeem had itself become a right of property. The mortgagor had an equitable state in the land and subject to legal rights of the mortgagee was in equity regarded as its owner. And this equitable estate, which, following Hale, the courts would later call equitable title, could be devised or conveyed like any other interest in property. Yet, the Court of Chancery also recognized, at least nominally, the lender's right to foreclose upon the land. At some point after the law day, when the lender thought he had waited long enough without payment of the amount due, the lender could petition the court for a decree providing that the landowner do from this point stand absolutely debarred and foreclosed of and from all right, title, interest, and equity of redemption of and in and to the said mortgage premises. And the process was known as strict foreclosure since it would extinguish the landowner's equitable interest in the property and grant the lender full ownership of the land whose value might far exceed the amount of the unpaid debt. So people figured this out a while back. The English courts resisted strict foreclosure for the same reasons they recognized the landowner's equity of redemption. Indeed, the Court of Chancery would refuse to enforce even a landowner's separate agreement not to assert a right of redemption later. As the court said, once a mortgage, always a mortgage, meaning that as a practical matter, the lender could not convert a security interest as mortgagee into a fee simple title to the land. And even when the Court of Chancery granted a decree of strict foreclosure, it remained open to vacatur years later if the landowner filed a petition to that effect. Thus, in English courts of equity, the lender's right to foreclose upon the land was nearly always honored in the breach. As Joseph Story put it later, the courts of equity constantly allow a redemption, although there is a forfeiture. 
So by the end of the 18th century, American courts of equity had begun to address these issues for themselves. The American courts were uniformly hostile to strict foreclosure in cases like this one, where the land's value exceeded the amount of the debt. New York's highest court in equity, for example, opined that in cases where the mortgage premises exceed the amount of the debt in value, strict foreclosure would be unconscionable. Joseph Story likewise recognized the unconscionableness of taking the land for the money. In other cases, the court opined that strict foreclosure had no appropriate place in a system of laws and jurisprudence where the mortgage does not operate as a conveyance of the legal title, but is only a lien upon the land as a security for a debt or other obligation of the mortgagor. So they're pointing out, nutshell this for you, that back to the 12th century, the idea that you could put land up as collateral on a loan was recognized and enforced by the courts. Somewhere along, somebody said, well, if they don't pay, I get to take the land back, right? And somebody said, well, obviously, that's why the land is put up as collateral. Okay. And somebody else later said, well, it seems that if the amount owed is enough to cause a breach, but not enough to cover the value of the land, there's something wrong with that. And by the time these laws are being interpreted in America, for instance, in New York in 1827, the courts had recognized that there could be something unconscionable about it, taking the land that's worth substantially more than the amount that caused the breach. So the American courts recognized a creditor's right to have the full effect of his securities. That full effect, however, did not entitle the creditor to recover more than the amount owed. And believe it or not, the court now cites the Magna Carta. Magna Carta itself had provided that a debtor's lands could be taken only to the extent necessary to satisfy the debt. And by the way, they're not saying because it's the Magna Carta, we must follow it. They're simply pointing out that there is a long, long history to this. Because the Magna Carta goes back to, I believe, 1215 or something. Yeah, 1215. And uh, that's a long time ago. 1215. So this idea goes back at least that far. The innovation of foreclosure by sale exemplified the ability of courts of equity to craft an appropriate remedy where courts of law could not. And that, again, is why you're in equity, because you're not simply asking for money, you're asking for the courts to allow you to foreclose on the property to recover your money. The New York court, in a case we talked about as a matter of judicial power and equity, said that the court may, when equity requires it, interpose at the instance of the mortgage or to direct a sale when the estate is greater value than the debt in order to prevent a strict foreclosure in the case. So that's what they talk about for quite a length of time. And then they point out Michigan law flatly contravened all of these long settled principles going back to the Magna Carta and earlier. When it allowed Oakland County to take absolute title to plaintiffs' homes as payment for their tax delinquencies, by taking absolute title to plaintiffs' property, the county took their equitable titles, and the county did so without a public foreclosure sale, without payment to the plaintiffs for their value of those titles. And so they basically point out that Michigan passed a law, and other states have done this too. Michigan passed a law, though, and said that we get to do this because we just said so. And... Strangely, like I said before, all of the government officials who are involved in these cases have defended them by saying, well, when you let your house go into foreclosure, you abandoned it. 
And yet when people get foreclosed on by the banks, they're not deemed to have abandoned their properties. So in sum, the takings clause is addressed to every sort of interest the citizen may possess. The plaintiff's equitable title to their homes with such an interest on the facts alleged here, the county took the plaintiff's property without just compensation in violation of the takings clause. Therefore, we reverse the district court's dismissal of the plaintiff's takings claim under the U.S. Constitution against Oakland County and remand for proceedings consistent with this opinion. The district court's judgment otherwise affirmed as the plaintiff's hall, the Lees, and Govan. Won't get into that that heavily here, uh, meaning that I'm not going to talk about it at all. This opinion was just filed recently, and so it is hot off the presses, as they say. And I remember doing stories about this and being absolutely blown away at the idea that your house goes into tax foreclosure and they foreclose on it. They pay themselves for the taxes that you owed, and then they keep the rest. They just pocket the leftover money. And I remember when I first heard about this, an attorney friend of mine contacted me and said, Hey, Steve, have you heard about this? He said, No. He said, Oh, I'm filing a class action on behalf of everyone it's happened to. I said, Oh, good luck with that. And so I followed that story as it's gone through the courts, and it's something that he devoted a ton of work on. And I know that it ended badly in the state court system. The Michigan Supreme Court had said, no, it's, you know, it's one of our laws and you know, looks good to us. And so this is one of the reasons federal courts exist, is that if you have a problem that can be framed as a constitutional issue, you can often bring the claim in federal court. And so these people here brought their action in federal court. And in federal court, they said it's obviously a takings clause issue. Under the Fifth Amendment, you can't take property uh, unless, you know, due compensation, et cetera, et cetera. And so it seems that way, pretty obvious to everyone, but somehow the Michigan courts didn't recognize it. And the first district court, the, the district court in the federal system didn't recognize it either. I merely mean first in series in the fact that they were the first ones to hear it. So they threw the case out, failure to state a claim. And uh, the Sixth Circuit on appeal said, no, they stated a claim. And by the way, just in case you didn't catch it, <laughs> the court didn't just say, we're going to reverse this. They said, we're going to reverse this because of the fact that the case law, going back about 900 years, backs the plaintiffs on this. And the fact that everyone else seems to have missed the 900 years of jurisprudence going the other way, uh, the court wrote a 18-page opinion, or thereabouts. So it can get thick reading at some points, but I like the fact that they call back to all those things from so long ago to point out that you have an understanding of what property is. When that understanding is enshrined in the Constitution, a state can't just come along and say, well, property means this, but not that. Uh, yeah, it's not how it works. So this is a great case. The Pacific Legal Foundation was heavily involved in this, as were a whole host of other attorneys. And one of the reasons that there's three or four pages of introductory matter in the case caption is it lists all of the attorneys who are involved. And there were a lot of attorneys involved on both sides. And sadly, the county and the state of Michigan were fighting this because they thought that that law made complete sense. You could owe a couple bucks on your house, your house gets foreclosed on, and they get to keep everything, everything. 
So it was a, a crazy situation. Now we'll see what happens because theoretically, the powers that be could appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court where they would lose. I am certain they would lose, but they probably won't get it taken up by the Supreme Court if they did appeal it. But now we're faced with a situation where all of the people who had this happen to them in Michigan presumably can now file lawsuits to get their money back. And the question simply becomes, how long ago did it happen? And is there a statute of limitations problem on that? So that's another story for another day. This video has run way over length. And I apologize because people complain on a daily basis that my videos are too long. And the only way you'd know that I just said that is because you're here watching me say it. So some of you stuck around. I appreciate that. But this is a huge, huge case. So I have to thank again Kate, the media director of Pacific Legal, for sending this over to me. Thank you very much. Pacific Legal does great work, just like the Institute for Justice. And uh, they got this spun around at the Court of Appeals. Uh, Sixth Circuit in the federal system. And, and think about this. There are plaintiffs whose homes were taken who filed lawsuits in state court and lost. Court of Appeals, state court and lost. Michigan Supreme Court and lost. District Court and lost. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and won. That's an extremely long road to travel to get what you're entitled to. But they won. And sometimes... It's a long, long road to get there, but when you get there, the right thing happens. So there you go. Again, that's the case of Hall versus Meisner. It is huge news in Michigan. Questions or comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. Computers have lots of memory, but no imagination.